0: Great! It is so good to be here. It was a joy to um, meet your pastor several years ago now, and just to uh, to get to know him and the and the church and, and all of you. Um, and uh, then then God took me to the other side of the world, and uh, and it's good to be back here. Um, thankful that I can serve you while Albert is away getting uh, some rest. Um, I was a pastor for seven years and. While I, I loved my congregation, loved my job, um, it was also always good to be able to disengage for a little while and then come back refreshed. So really glad that uh, he has the opportunity to do that. Um, and it's it's great that I get to be with you guys as well. Uh, Lord willing, we are leaving uh, tomorrow to return to Kenya, so please pray for us as um, we're now in the midst of packing all the suitcases. I think we'll leave with. 15 or 16 suitcases, seven carry ons, five children, um, all will go out of Dallas tomorrow, Lord willing. Um, so please pray for us as those final things are coming together, as well as some hard goodbyes as we're, we're saying goodbye to our families. Um, <clears throat> and it's a joy to be able to come and have this time focused on God's word. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. This is one of my favorite passages. I think it so clearly illustrates the gospel if we slow down and pay attention to what's going on here. Exodus 34, we're going to look at verses 29 to 35, though I will be sensitive to the broader context. This is a story within a larger story. So I'll read this passage, but we'll have to think of some other things that happened before and after. Exodus 34, verses 29 to 35. Um, let me read it for us. When, and then I'll read it and then pray. Um, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them. All the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come before you um, in need of your grace and in need of you to speak You've spoken in your word, it is written, and you have asked, commanded even, that your church be gathered regularly to hear your word read and explained. And so we pray that as we do that, Christ would be real to us, your Holy Spirit would come and and make Christ known in our hearts, we would see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would make us aware of our need of you as you make us aware of your provision of that need in Christ. Lord, convict us of our sin that we may appreciate more of the gospel. Lord, show us our need for guidance, for wisdom, for truth, for perspective outside of ourselves as we see how that is met in Christ and in the community that Christ has established for us. Lord, we thank you for this church. Thank you for the pastor that you have called here. We pray for him that these next few weeks would be a time of uh, refreshing, would be a time to um, be uh, encouraged by you, and that he would um, would just continue in faithfulness here. We pray for the congregation that you would uh, grow them deeper in your word, deeper in the knowledge of your grace and that they would continue to sing out joyfully to you who have saved them and who has called them to you. Lord, we thank you for your grace um, amongst the people here, and we pray that we continue. And Lord, we pray now that you would would open our ears to your word, you would uh, remove distractions, help us to uh, listen and internalize and live out what you have called us to. In this passage, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think of a time when you offended somebody in authority over you, and it was clearly your fault. The authority is rightfully upset at you. You've created a problem in the relationship. Maybe you tried to fix it, but for various reasons, you've only made it worse. What do you need to happen? Well, you need the person to come to you, right? You need them to speak graciously to you. You need them to to initiate grace. I remember when I offended somebody in authority over me. It was my first few weeks in seminary, and there was this copy machine and it would frequently jam. And uh, there was a fellow student who was trying to print something, and it was kind of urgent. He needed it printed, and it kept jamming. And you know, I had used copiers before, so I thought of myself as an expert. right? And um, oh, I'll fix it for him. And um, if I'm honest, though, I was just trying to you know, do something good so that people would like me. And I went way beyond what anybody without any real skills should do in fixing a copier. I started taking things apart. And then I, I triggered something, which created an explosion of ink all over me. And just then, the systematic prof- theology professor walked by and saw what I had done and was upset at me. And I apologized as much as I could and then got to class as quickly as possible, now covered with ink. I felt terrible. But before that day was over, the professor sought me out, pretty easy to find me, I'm the guy now with you know, black all over his shirt. And he spoke to me, and he assured me that it would be okay. He told me he was glad I was there, and he looked forward to having me in his classes. He was kind and gracious. I left school that day feeling really stupid, not only because I had ruined a good shirt, but also grateful that he had taken the time to come and find me and graciously restored the relationship that I had foolishly, in a sense, broken. Now, I share that story because it's a faint analogy. and Let me emphasize its faintness, its, its remoteness. But, but nevertheless, somewhat of an analogy for what's going on in this passage. You see, this passage is the resolution of a series of terrible events that began back in chapter 32 when the people of Israel sinned grievously against the Lord, the Lord who is the rightful authority over them. He is their their covenant head. They owe him exclusive loyalty and obedience. But the people, as you may remember from this story, they sinned. They set up the golden calf, and now they have no right to expect anything from God but his just retribution. What will God do? It's the question that hangs over this passage. And the answer, according to this passage, is that God will be gracious. He comes down to them. He finds them out. He speaks to them through Moses, and in so doing, he renews his covenant fellowship with the people. And so I think this passage is a stunning picture of the gospel. Mike Allen, a Um, systematic theologian, has written what I think is one of the most helpful summaries of the gospel. It goes like this. The God who is life has graciously given life to us. When we refuse that life in sin, God graciously offers that life to us again. It's a great summary. It needs filling out, right? How did he do that? But it is a summary of the broader story of the gospel, This passage emphasizes that sense of, again. You see, before this passage, God had already offered life to the people. He had already taken the people to himself. He had already said to them, I am your God, you are my people. They were his, he was theirs. God offered them life. But in their sinfulness, they refused God's life. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the image of a golden calf. And yet in this passage, we see God offering himself to them once again. I think we see the gospel in this passage in three ways. First, we see in verse 29 to 30 that God comes down. Second, we see in verses 31 to 33 that God speaks. This is the renewing of the covenant, the re-giving of the covenant. And then verse, uh, thir- verses 34 to 35, we see that God is present. God comes down, God speaks, and God is present those aspects of the gospel we see illustrated here. First, we see the gospel in the way that God comes down. And he comes down to the people through Moses. Notice there in verse 29 that it says twice that Moses came down. When Moses came down from, the mount, from mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain. Notice that for emphasis. He's coming down. And if you think more broadly in the book of Exodus, that phrase, coming down, has weight to it. It has meaning to it. Because in the very beginning of the book of Exodus, it says that God came down and He saw their afflictions. And how did God come down here in in this passage? Well, He comes down through Moses. Um, Remember, in the very beginning, God's... God's presence is, is in the book of Exodus is tied to Moses. So, so how did God come down to be with the people in the very beginning? Well, by calling Moses to himself, right? Remember, Moses, when he sees the burning bush, asks the question, Who am I that I should go before Pharaoh? And God says to Moses, I am with you. God is with Moses. So where Moses is, God's powerful presence is also there too. And Moses, as we know, does extraordinary things that he could only do because God is with him. And so when Moses comes down from the mountain here in this passage, with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, when he comes down from the mountain, God is coming down to be with the people. And this reveals the Gospel because He is coming down to be with the people even though they had sinned and broken the relationship with God, broken the covenant. You've got to understand that Moses coming down from the mountain was was an issue. Earlier in chapter 32, the people thought Moses was taking too long in the mountain. He'll never come down, they said. And so they said to Moses, make us a golden calf because, quote, as for this Moses, we don't know what happened to him. And then, of course, if you know the story, God does send Moses down. He sends Moses down in judgment. And Moses breaks the the Ten Commandments. He breaks the stones, not just as an act of anger, but as a way of showing the people, you broke the covenant. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain. And the people don't know what will happen to them. And then God sends Moses down again, not in wrath, not in judgment but in grace, to restore the people to himself. When we refuse God's life in sin, he offers it to us once again. It's a picture of the gospel as Moses comes down with God's presence to be with the people even though they have sinned against God. And notice the sign of God's presence that he gives. Uh, Verse 29 ends... This way, it says, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. <laughs> I wonder what that experience was like. How, how did they tell Moses, you know, Moses, your face is shining? Like, he didn't know this. And, and he sees them and they well, presumably alert him to that fact. But clearly, um, this, is a, this is a sign of God's presence. To understand this, we have to go back to chapter 33 where God at one point threatens to send the people to the promised land because he had promised that, but not go with them. And he says, my presence, literally in Hebrew, my face will not go with you lest I destroy you on the way. So they'll get the promised land without God's presence, without God's face. And the people take this to be a disastrous word. That is, the people don't want the promised land if God is not there. By the way, a question we might ask ourselves is, would we want heaven if God was not there? Anyway, now Moses is coming down and the skin of his face is shining with the glory of God. And that is to tell the people, no, God's face, God's presence is with you. He will not send you to the promised land without himself going there too. Of course, God's presence makes them feel uncomfortable. Verse 30 says that they are afraid, which is the same response they have when they are at the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai and they see the glory. They are afraid. We ought to have a sense of fear in the presence of God. John Murray put it so well when he said, it is the height of stupidity and irreverence not to be afraid when there is every reason to be afraid. God's presence is a weighty thing. It is not to be trifled with. But this is a clear sign that God has come down to be with them. His glory, while mighty and terrifying, is also the assurance that He is truly with them. God's presence, God's face will continue with the people even though they are a sinful people. As I pondered this passage one of the things I found so interesting is that Moses' face did not shine the first time he had came down from the mountain, when he comes down in judgment, when God sends sends Moses down because the people had sinned with the golden calf. Moses' face does not shine then. So it's not the case that his face shines automatically when he's been talking with God. And I thought to myself, if I were God... I would have made Moses' face shine the first time he came down from the mountain in judgment. I would have been like, you made a golden calf instead of waiting for my prophet? Well, take this. Be scared. But God is not like me. Good thing too. He doesn't use the sign of His presence to scare the people into submission. But He uses the sign of His presence, a weighty thing that it is, To assure the people of his love, of his covenantal fidelity to them, his loving kindness. Think about it. This visible display of God's presence, Moses' shining face, occurs after God has forgiven the people. It is the assurance that they really are God's people. And notice that it's not for Moses' sake. Because Moses didn't even know that it was happening. Right? Verse 29. Moses did not know that the skin of his face was shining. God has given Moses many signs to assure him of his presence, right? Earlier, God Moses says, Let me see your face, and God God says, Well, you can see the, the afterglow of my glory. But but this sign is for the people. This sign is to say that to people, be comforted. I am with you. I am with you through Moses. And friends, this principle, that the deepest revelation of God's presence is not to scare the people into obedience, but to assure them of His love, this principle is also what we see in the New Testament. This event here in Exodus 34 is referred to all over the place in the New Testament. We don't have time to look at every place, but one at least that we need to mention is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul talks about the glory of God in the face of Christ, The glory of God in the face of Moses is only a foretaste, a foreshadow of this ultimate glory in the face of Christ. And according to Paul, this glory in the face of Christ is something that God has shown in our hearts. So that we all, that is the church, with unveiled faces, are beholding the glory of the Lord. We, God's people, the church, are beholding the glory of the Lord of God in the face of Christ. Now, of course, in one sense, God's glory is revealed to all of creation, to everyone, through the things that are made. But His personal display of glory, the glory of His face, is revealed to His people. That's how God works. Think of Jesus' high priestly prayer, where He says, I pray that those whom You have given Me may be with me to see my glory. Friends, have you considered that God really wants to, His people to know Him? He really wants them to, to know Him, to behold Him, to be assured of, of His presence with them. God's grace here in this passage is not seen simply in the fact that God would forgive the rebellious people. Oh, that's a wonderful thing in and of itself. But that's not the full reality of God's grace. His grace here is seen in that having forgiven them, he then discloses himself to them. Think about it. The golden calf incident is one of the the low points of Israel's history, right? It's, it's where they really blew it. And after this incident, God doesn't say, hey guys, I think we need to slow down. Maybe have some time apart. I'll be, a, I'll, you know, not be with you, but not as, not as close. No. In fact, it actually speeds it up. The revelation of God's glory in the face of, of Moses is an advancement in the story of redemption. It brings things Further along. Here's a, a practical application for us as Christians. And let me warn you, it's going to take a little while to get to the practical part, but just bear with me. I think it's, it's worth, getting, worth thinking about this. Here, here's what we ought to do, or what not to do. We ought not to think that living under the old covenant, the covenant that came through Moses, was to live in a legalistic arrangement. And by contrast, the New Covenant is a covenant of grace. We ought not to think that way. Instead, we need to recognize that there is exceeding grace in the Old Covenant. We can't think of a simple dichotomy. Works, grace. Old Covenant works, New Testament grace. That's not how it actually is. Because think about it. As I already said, the, the, the golden calf incident, low point for Israel's history. And yet, this is the place where, where they're getting the law. This is the place where the covenant is being established. And so you have embedded in this story of Israel receiving the law is Israel's greatest failure to keep the law. If they were on a strict legalistic arrangement, they'd be cut off forever. But they're not. They're not. Their relationship with God continues. And it doesn't just just continue, it deepens. So we can't think of the Old Covenant as just this legalistic arrangement where law regulates God's relationship with His people. Okay, well then maybe you're thinking of some New Testament verses where where the Old Covenant is thought of as law-based and the New Covenant is grace, right? Right? Well, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a passage that, as we've already said, draws on Exodus 34, it describes the covenant as law-based only in comparison to the new. In 2 Corinthians 3.10, Paul says, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that has surpassed it. He's talking there about how the New Covenant surpasses the Old. It's not that the, new, that the Old Covenant had no glory, no grace, but that the New Covenant far surpasses it. Make sense? Only compared to the New Covenant does the Old Covenant seem lacking grace. Because the New Covenant has such lavish grace, such superabundance of grace. Okay, now why is that a practical application? Well, because it will help you understand the gracious nature of the new covenant all the more. Here's where we can go wrong. If we understand the old covenant believer's relationship with God as one based on the law and ours is one based on grace, then we'll be inclined to think that if we have any sense of grace at all, we understand what the new covenant is all about. If we have any sense of God's grace, then we think, I'm not living the Christian life as though I were under the old covenant. I understand the new covenant. But see, the real situation is there was abundant grace in the old covenant. So if you see abundant, substantial grace in the old covenant, then that forces you to see much more grace in the new covenant. Does that make sense? And Paul points to the way this works in the way that he talks, sees how Moses had to put a veil over his face. And we can gaze, um, Paul says here, Moses would put a veil over his face so that Isra- the Israelites might not gaze at what was at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. They could not look in Moses' face with, and see the glory um, without eventually having to stop. But then Paul says, we all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord. Our access... See, see, under the old covenant, they saw God's glory. But our access to God's glory is much greater. We can gaze into the face of Christ. One of my theological heroes is a 17th century pastor named Walter Marshall. And it's interesting, he spent most of his Christian life actually uh, failing to understand the gracious nature of the New Covenant, thinking that if there was any grace at all, he understood the meaning of the New Covenant, and, and he struggled. But then there was a pastor friend that talked with him and pointed out that his greatest sin was the sin of unbelief. In other words, he was a far worse sinner than he realized But that helped him see that God's grace was far deeper than he realized. And then he read the Bible with fresh eyes and wrote this amazing book on the way in which God's grace changes us. So, question for you to consider then is, does your experience of God's grace far and exceed the grace that came to God through Moses? You've got to see in this passage, there's abundant grace that came to the people through Moses. And if your experience of God's grace does not exceed that, then be like that pastor, Walter Marshall, who did not give up, but pursued a deeper understanding of God's grace more and more. But not only that, not only do we see the gospel in the fact that God comes down, we also see the gospel in that God speaks. Here's point number two. Notice in this passage how important it is that God speaks. Verse 31 Moses called to Aaron and the leaders and talked with them. Of course, Moses is talking to them about what God had said. Verse 32, all the people came near and Moses commanded them. What did he command them? All that the Lord had spoken to him. Verse 33, when Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And also, if we go back to verse 28, we see that Moses is given the Ten Commandments, but literally in Hebrew it says the ten words. And those words he then brings down to the people. Emphasis in this passage then on speaking. Why? Well, quite simply this. God is pursuing a relationship with his people. That's what the book of Exodus is all about. And a relationship requires words, right? I mean, the glorious display of God in the face of Moses is significant. But it's not enough. On its own, the people are just going to run away. They need to understand what it means. They need to know that this means God is coming to be with them. And for that, they need words. And they need to know how to respond. And for that, they need words. And God has given words through Moses. Note the pattern here. God speaks to Moses. Right? God speaks to Moses. Then Moses turns around and speaks to the people. That's, that's what he's doing as a mediator of God. He's bringing the Word of God to the people. And the people's relationship with God is regulated through, this, through these words, through this covenant. The people's relationship with God has a shape to it. There is a way of relating to God that God spells out for the people In the written covenant. God has promised to be their God. And that means certain things for them. And God has made them into his people. And that obligates them to live in certain ways. This is spelled out in the covenant. And this is why we are to be a people who give ourselves to words. That's why we disciple ourselves, discipline ourselves to listen to sermons. That's why, insofar as it is possible, we read our Bibles. We want to know what God has said, what God has spoken. Our relationship with God is not merely words, as though being educated were the same thing as being godly, but it does require words. Notice something else that I had missed before I studied this passage, and that is that when Moses speaks to them, they see his shining face. They see the glory of God in his shining face, I should say. For some reason, I had thought that Moses would always speak behind the veil. But the text actually goes out of its way to say the opposite. When Moses speaks, they see the glory. What does that mean? It means that the law comes to the people at the same time that God is letting the people in on his glory. The requirement for how to live comes at the same time God is saying, I really want you to know me. There's no dichotomy, no separation, no opposition between holy living on the one hand and Christian experience on the other. This connection between words and seeing the glory of God is also uh, brought to us in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, which is probably another allusion to Exodus 34. Hebrews chapter 1 says, "...in many times and in many ways God has spoken to the fathers by the prophets." And prophets there is kind of um, pointing to Moses particularly. God has spoken to the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son." He is speaking in his Son. Now, who is the Son? Well, the very next verse. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance. He shines forth the glory of God. And he has spoken. He is the speaking radiance of God. That's what Moses was a picture of, a shadow of. And that's who Jesus is for real You could ask Albert what he thinks of this, but I think that it would be kind of cool if, you know, preachers got up and their face show, right? Take off the veil and boom. Somebody's fallen asleep, you just turn to them and it's like an interrogation room. There'd be a kind of power in that, right? But, you know, we have something better. The gospel that we preach reveals the glory of God in the face of Christ, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and He is revealed in the words of the Gospel. When you hear the Gospel, you're seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. And therefore, you must listen. You must, as the author of Hebrews goes on to say, pay more careful attention to what you have heard. Faith comes by hearing. And as we respond in faith to this word, we are brought in. As we listen by faith, we are included in this display of God's glory. Um, In Exodus 34, if you look at verse 32, there's this interesting word for how Moses relays the commands to the people. It says in English, Moses commanded the people, all that the Lord had spoken. But the fuller meaning is something like, Moses commanded made them responsible for what was said. There's a reflexive sense in this word that Moses is doing. That is to say, Moses instills ownership in them for keeping the word that they heard as they listen to the words that Moses is speaking to them that came from God, they aren't simply passive receivers. They are active listeners. They are internalizing this word as they are hearing it. And friends, that's what we should be like as well. To hear the word of Christ, the speaking radiance of God, implicates us into a life of obedience. To be in fellowship with this God is to commit to live in a certain way. Not, of course, so that we become the people of God, but because we already are His people. And that's clear from this passage, too. They did not receive the the commands of God and then, after obeying them, become His people. No, God has taken the people to Himself first, and now He has spoken to them about what they should do. The point is, when we hear the gospel, we respond. We say with Mary, here I am, Lord, the servant of the Lord. May it be not done to me according to your will. We, as Paul says, present ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. We wake up, as Paul says in Ephesians, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Paul reflects on the Christian meaning of Exodus 34 when he says, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. When we hear, we also see. And when we see, we are being changed. And part of that change, Paul will go on to say, is that we become ambassadors of Christ. We shine the radiance of the glory of God before others. We proclaim the gospel without shame. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. We see the gospel here in that God comes down and then that God speaks. Finally, we see the gospel in God's abiding presence with the people. We see this in verses 34 and 35. Now, if you notice those verses, if you look at those verses, you'll notice that they stand out because they're not really part of the story. They stand out grammatically because they're not really part of the story. Instead, these verses tell us aspects of the story that became a continual reality. Notice verses, look at verse 34. Whenever Moses went before the Lord, He would remove the veil, and the Lord would speak to him, and he would speak to the people. This isn't part of that story. It's telling us what happened continually after the story. Why is he doing that? Why does the narrator, presumably Moses himself, want to tell us how this story triggered something that has always been happening? Well, I think that if you look at the book of Exodus, the answer is because the author, ultimately the Holy Spirit, wants us to see continuity between this story and what comes next. And what comes next is the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where God's glory comes to dwell amidst the people. And I think what's going on here is that the skin on Moses' face shining is a picture of the glory of the Lord that they will see in the tabernacle. Flip over a few pages with me in Exodus to look at chapter 34 and look at verse 36. Here we see how the book of Exodus ends with another continuing reality. Verse 36 says, Throughout all their journey... Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of the Lord, or sorry, the people of Israel would set out. So something continually happening. And then skip down to verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journey. Now, to see the continuity between Moses' face and this, this other continuing reality, you've got to kind of visualize what was going on here. At night, the Lord manifests Himself as fire inside the tabernacle. And through the, through the curtains, of the, through, through the sides of that tent, the tabernacle is a tent, through the sides of that tent, the people can see the fire. Thus, they see the glory of God radiating through the tabernacle. The tabernacle is another visual display of the glory of God. And like Moses' shining face, it affirms for the people that God is present with them. Now, there's another similarity between Moses and the tabernacle. And that is that the tabernacle, as I said, it's a tent. That tent is made of skin. If you read the rest of Exodus, it's very clear. Goat skin, ram skin, the tabernacle is made of skin. Did you notice in chapter 34, it's very specific, that it was the skin of Moses' face that was shining? It mentions his skin in verse 29, 30, and 34. It never just says his face was shining. It says the skin on his face was shining. In both Moses and the tabernacle, God's glory is seen through skin. Why do you think God did it that way? Why do you suppose that when God wanted to introduce this special building, because the book of Exodus really is leading up to the tabernacle, the place where God's presence is going to be, is going to dwell, in order to get to that place, that building, he first introduced a person who would prefigure that building. Why did God do it that way? Why does he go from a person to a building? Maybe because... The ultimate goal is to replace the building with a person. Another allusion to Exodus 34 is John 1.14, which you could translate this way. The Word has become flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have beheld His glory. To tabernacle is to come and dwell with, to, to be with. The eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, became flesh, became skin, and tabernacled on earth. And why did He do that? Well, as the text says, and we have beheld His glory. We see the glory of God through the flesh of Jesus. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. Jesus is the glory of God manifested here on earth through flesh, through skin, Okay, so some interesting biblical theology on skin, but what does that tell us? Well, think about it this way, friends. The fact that God reveals his glory to us through skin means that he really reveals his glory to us. Think about where you'd be in life without your skin. Not a pretty picture, is it? Think about how important skin is for human experience the mother tenderly nursing her baby, the intimacy of a husband and wife's embrace, the the firm handshake or comforting hug of a friend. Our skin is so important to our human existence. And the fact that God reveals Himself to us through skin means that He really reveals Himself to us. God accommodates Himself to our mode of existence. He truly comes to be with us. But not only that, skin, flesh, is also our vulnerability, isn't it? It means a weakness, a susceptibility to suffering, and even death. Think of the animal skins that Adam and Eve were given after they were expelled from the garden. Those skins prefigured the skins of the tabernacle. And for both that, those skins for Adam and Eve and the tabernacle, animals had to die. And Moses, in this text, offers to die for the people. He says, God, if you're going to kill the people, take me too. But Jesus actually dies. The word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us, and then his flesh was pierced. The skin of his hands and feet and his side were pierced. He bled. He died. But he did not stay dead. God raised his body and gave him new flesh. A new body, and he is the first fruits of all those who will believe in him. We too will be given new flesh, so that we can say with Job, After my skin is thus destroyed, in my flesh I will see the Lord. Notice how, from beginning to end, skin is part of the way that God reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to us through skin, to people who are in skin. And the fact that the glory of God comes to us in skin means that it really comes to us. There are so many more things we could say about this passage, but I want to take you to one more place that a New Testament writer draws on Exodus 34 to describe a continuing reality. And this one is at the very end of the Bible. Revelation 21, verses 22 says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So, in Israel's history, the temple replaces the tabernacle. And now, in the book of Revelation, there is no temple. Why? John goes on to say, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Right? We started this, this time looking at Moses' face shining. They could see it actually, brilliant face. Now, there's... In heaven, there'll be no need for sun or moon because the Lord himself is the light. Revelation 22.4 says, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We will see the face of the Lamb of Christ. And he will shine in such a way that we do not need sun or moon. And this is not a one-time event, but a continuing reality that will go on and on and on. A pastor I know said something about Exodus 34 that I'll never forget. He said, Exodus 34 is not the end of the world, but it is how the world ends the glory presence of God coming to be with the people and we, His people, seeing that glory, this is the final end for which we are created. This is the ultimate salvation that God has prepared for His people. Friends, I pray that Exodus 34 will spur you on to hope for, yearn for, long for, and live in light of that final day which is, a, which is not really an end but the beginning of a continual reality that will never end. Exodus 34 points to the resolution of the terrible events that began in Genesis 3 when the God who is life offered life to His people and they refused that life in sin. But the good news of the Gospel is that in Christ He has offered life to us again. My non-Christian friends, if you're here with us and, and you're not a Christian, why not believe in this Christ? He has really come down from the mountain, so to speak. He has offered immeasurable grace for rebels who believe in Him. And He will come down again to bring final salvation to all those who trust in Him and wrath and vengeance for all those who reject Him. So won't you believe in Him? And be among those who patiently wait for him. Well, I think the fitting response to this passage is to quote the final words of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.